chapter 21, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Well, let us ask for God's blessing upon his word preached. Our Father, we thank you for your word and ask that it will be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our pathway, that collectively as the body of Christ we will grow into maturity as we receive your word by faith in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Uh, I trust and hope that many of you have had um, fine experience with fish. Uh, As I have told you, my sermon preparation is not confined to my office. In fact, the older I get, the less confined to my office uh, my sermon preparation uh, becomes that dingy, dark space of loneliness. Uh, I get out into the open and see many things I had not yet seen. My wife made some fish for me this week. It was the best fish I can remember eating since, well, South Africa, where I will not be going uh, anytime soon. But uh, it was just so delicious. And you know the problem with English people, uh, and my mother is a very good cook, but uh, the problem with English people is they overcook things. Uh, they overcook fish, they overcook meat. Uh, they're really not great culinary uh, artists. Um, and if you overcook fish or meat, uh, shame on you. But uh, you eat this lovely fish, and sometimes it brings you back to a sort of deja vu an experience of where you can vividly remember certain meals. There's meals etched into your psyche as a human being where you just love the meal. I remember a 50th birthday 
Uh, French cuisine, oh, it was good. Yes, yes, Heather, uh, perfect amount. Uh, certain meals just stay etched in my uh, memory, and uh, these meals um, uh, bring you back with many different sort of ideas. It's not just the food you eat, it's the people you're with, it's the conversation, and there's a massive sense of deja vu here for the disciples, actually. And I'm not really suggesting the taste of the fish, but if you actually, as I believe, know that the early Christians, by the time they are reading John's Gospel, are probably quite well acquainted with the stories and narrative of the Synoptic Gospels, they would have known that in Luke chapter 5, almost an identical story takes place. At the beginning of Christ's ministry, when he calls the disciples, they are both uh, instances on the shore of Galilee, and there's the same people involved, I think, Uh, Probably the same boat, it was Peter's boat, and uh, this may have been Peter's boat, where they owned their own boat. In both instances, at first, there is unsatisfactory fishing going on. They are not catching anything, and in both instances, Jesus says to them, try again, and then there is immediate success. Now, the parallels are striking. One is at the beginning of the three years that Jesus has with his disciples, This instance is at the end of the three years together. And I think that Jesus is, in a certain sense, as he reveals himself to them, and you can't help but notice the word he revealed himself twice, just in the first uh, line. He revealed himself. He revealed himself that this is a revelation of who Jesus is to his disciples And nothing has fundamentally changed from the beginning when he said to them in Luke chapter 5, verse 10, I will make you fishers of men. Now, they are actually going to be fishers of men in a way that they actually have a message to take. And the message they are taking is one of resurrection hope. So, while there are many similarities, now they are going forth with a message. And so Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. And you, you wonder why did John add on this epilogue? Some have said, if you look at the last words of John chapter 20 and the last words of John chapter 21 about how many uh, signs and miracles and things that Jesus did, there is couched in between that this narrative of a post-resurrection appearance. What is so crucial about what is going on here? That's what we need to find out. This isn't just about Jesus being able to cook a meal for them. This is the shaping of their future. So he reveals himself in this way. There is Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others. There's seven disciples together. And Peter, who usually is the one who is a man of action, says to them, I am going fishing. Now some believe that this is a mark of rank apostasy and backsliding by Peter. That Peter is going back to his old ways, his old, uh, shall we say, job in life. And Peter should have been going forward, so to speak, in his ministry, in the preaching of the gospel, and he's going back fishing. And some commentators give him a very hard time, and the disciples who join in with this apostasy, 
and go fishing. Others say on the other end of the spectrum, well, hang on now. Jesus is not around. He wasn't with them for every hour of every day for the 40 days He appeared after His resurrection. So they needed to eat. What are they going to do if they need to eat? They're not wealthy men. They've left everything for the sake of Christ to follow Him. They need to go and eat. How will they eat? They need to fish. I think probably the truth is somewhere in the middle. That yes, they need to eat, but there's a sense in which the disciples are still in a sort of spiritual darkness concerning their mission in life. Who they are going to be as servants of Christ. And so John does draw attention to that in this narrative. He says, I am going fishing. They say, we will go with you. And they went out. They got into the boat. But that night, and John uses these illustrations of darkness and light throughout his Gospel, so I don't think this is by accident. In the darkness, they come up empty. They caught nothing. These professional fishermen caught nothing. I'm not a professional fisherman. I'm not even an amateur fisherman. I'm below amateur fisherman. I go and uh, spend time with my wife's family in Prince Edward Island, and we go on the fishing expedition where they take you that you're guaranteed to catch fish. If you can just hold on to a fishing rod, you will feel something, you pull it up, and you feel like you're a great master fisherman. The mackerel come up, you cook it, you say, thank you mackerel, you lived a good life in the ocean, now I'm eating you, and you're all happy, and you've paid an obscene amount of money, well, my mother-in-law does, but an obscene amount of money for the privilege. These are professional fishermen, and I imagine that if you are a professional, it can be quite frustrating to come up empty in the thing that you are a professional at. Whereas I would go, well, that makes sense. I'm pretty much useless at fishing. No wonder I got a worm on the end that's still there. So you have to understand there's a little bit of frustration here as they are doing the thing that they are good at. And they catch nothing. But as the day is breaking, so you notice they've probably been fishing for many hours. This wasn't just a sort of, oh, they go out, row, row, row your boat, throw your net over, oh, there's no fish, oh dear. They've been fishing for hours likely. They have caught nothing. Jesus stands on the shore, but the disciples don't know that it is the Lord. So Jesus said to them, and the word that's used here probably would be closer to something like lads, um, not so much children as in little children, but lads. And uh, one of the things the Greek doesn't quite capture here is that Jesus is fully aware that they haven't caught any fish. He's not asking a question in the sense that he doesn't know. Now, he can ask that question as though he didn't know before the resurrection. I think it's highly unlikely after the resurrection that he would be ignorant of something like this. And the reason I say that is because the Greek is actually better translated. Instead of, do you have any fish? He's saying, lads, you haven't caught any fish, have you? He can see clearly they've come up empty. And so he's saying to them something that they know is the case. Lads, you haven't caught a thing, have you? And their response is no. And I don't know what happened in the first century, whether when you went out fishing, people on the side stood and said, oh, how's your fishing going? Haven't caught anything? I don't suspect it was quite like that, but they did answer back, no. Would you like to come and help us? Well, interesting question. 
He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now that's very interesting. I had to look up. Uh, my suspicion was that they would cast to the left side of the boat because most people being right-handed would cast the net. And lo and behold, Google told me I was correct. Now, I can't tell you how much relief that brought me. If I'd been fishing, I think I would have caught fish because I'm left-handed, so I would have thrown to the right side of the boat initially. And if the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval period had understood that left-handedness was actually not so bad when it comes to fishing in the first century, they wouldn't have come up with all of these wicked ideas that left-handed people are sinister and all the rest. But they do actually have to change their technique, and they cast to the right side of the boat. They immediately obey, and lo and behold, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. This is, I think, immediately where deja vu kicks in from Luke chapter 5, where they caught nothing, Jesus tells them to put their nets down, and all of a sudden the nets are bursting with fish. That is why John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Why? It could have been still dark, and he may not have been able to make out that it was actually the Lord. He knew it was the Lord because of what the Lord had said, and what the result was when the Lord said what he said. That's how he knew. I don't think it was, oh, it's a bit lighter, I think I can see it's now him. This was about what happened at his command that he knew it was the Lord. Now, Peter, who is a man of action, John is more the type who has quick insight. Peter just jumps in, but puts his clothes on and jumps into the water and rushes over to our Lord. It's, it's quite, I think, special when you read the Gospels, you read the accounts, the eyewitness accounts, how often the little details consistently remind us of the personality traits of the disciples. It's not haphazard. Everything always makes sense. John, at the time of the resurrection, was the one who knew it was the Lord, but didn't say anything. Peter's the one who is constantly a man of action, and here he jumps in, leaves his disciples with all the fish, and they follow him. Verse 8. They came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. There's the eyewitness testimony. Now, when they get out onto the land, they see a charcoal fire in place. Why is that detail given? You may think, I don't know why it's given. I don't really suspect it's important, except that that's just what was happening. However, there's only two instances of a charcoal fire being spoken of in John. And I think probably anywhere else in the Gospels. And lo and behold, the last time someone was at a charcoal fireplace was in chapter 18, verse 18, where Peter is denying our Lord Jesus Christ at a charcoal fireplace. You want deja vu? There you have a charcoal fireplace. You want deja vu? You've got fish being caught at the command of our Savior. And you will see that Peter is actually restored at this charcoal fireplace in verses 15 and onwards. So they're at the charcoal fireplace 
And he says to them, after he has laid fish, which he already had, and bread, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore. And again, you do get the idea that Peter was probably quite a strong guy. You know, you look at the race they had. Remember Peter and John? Peter's probably the guy that goes to the gym and always lifting weights. I have a friend like that. He's a pastor in Langley. You can figure out who it may or may not be. Always goes and uh, lifts weights. Uh, But then take him for a run with, let's say, a 73-year-old man. You can guess who that may or may not be. And he, he gets wiped out by the elderly gentleman in a race. Uh, John runs, he's faster, Peter's not so fast. He's strong though, and like Peter was probably a very, very strong man. I think he would have been no doubt that Peter was a man, by the way. Uh, You would have just looked at him and been like, this guy is a man. And uh, that's important in this day and age, is it not? So Simon Peter hauls the net ashore full of large fish, And you see how many details are offered here? John could have easily said, so Simon Peter went, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, and that was enough. But then you have these words, 153 of them. And this has caused, and I'm sure none of you will be surprised at this, this has caused no shortage of ink spilled by theologians and pastors over the years. And when you get into gematria in the Bible, there can be some very keen insights, but there can also be some wildly crazy insights. And initially, initially, I will admit, I thought that the 153 fish were listed because there were 153 fish. I'm not so convinced now it's that simple. The triangular of 17, so if you have a triangle and you start with 1 and then you go 2, 3, and then you go 3, 4, 5, and you have 17 lines, it will end at 153. Now that in and of itself means absolutely nothing to me, and I don't know why contextually that would mean anything, but that's not where it stops. Some of you love this stuff, some of you still mildly skeptical. I can see the skepticism on your faces already, and this unbelief has got to stop. Now, Hebrew uh, letters convey numbers. They don't have a number system. So they use letters to convey numbers. And we read from Ezekiel chapter 47, and the language of Ezekiel chapter 47 is language picked up by John, especially in the book of Revelation, when he talks about the rivers and the trees on either side of the river and the healing of the nations. And in chapter 47, verse 10, we read, Fishermen will stand beside the sea from En-Gedi to En-Eglame. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. And that's talking about the Messianic age, the glory of the new covenant, and all of the blessing of God. Now what's interesting is Gedi, in Hebrew, amounts to the number 17, and the triangular of 17 is 153. But Eglaim, actually, if you parse out its numbers, arrives at 153. So, on the one hand, while I think we can be skeptical of some of the nonsense that inevitably goes on when people are trying to make everything fit, 
there are important contextual considerations here where John may be drawing, I think, on the promises of the new covenant spoken of in Ezekiel 47, and whether he knew it or not when he wrote 153, the point is that this may well be signifying the perfection of the number of fish that will be brought into the net. That is to say, the perfection of the people of God that will be caught by the preaching of the gospel in the new covenant. That's the best I can do. Now, that does raise another interesting question. Because although there were so many, the net was not torn. And if you want to really allegorize things, you could say how not one will be lost. And so Jesus says, come and have breakfast. But none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? Because they knew now it was the Lord. All of these events, quite apart from his appearance, were indications that Christ was present with them. And so Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this is the third time, John says, that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You can imagine that maybe they're all gathered in the room together, the doors are locked, and Jesus comes and appears before them, and and maybe he never appears before them again, and they think, you know, maybe we were hallucinating. Maybe there was this collective... uh, thing that goes on and we thought we saw him because we just wanted to see him but John is telling us that's not the case this is the third time now that he has appeared before them and he is revealing more and more of his mission through them to the disciples now what's the point that we need to grasp from this why does John give us this whole story of catching fish and the answer is really quite simple Jesus has told his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. He has also told them they are going to be fishers of men. And they were working hard all through the night. They were experts. They were fishermen. They were not amateurs. And they were getting nowhere. They were getting absolutely nowhere. And if Christ hadn't arrived... They could have been fishing for another thousand years if Christ had intended by His providence to withhold the fish from their nets. They could have stayed there for days and years and decades and they wouldn't have caught a single fish. It was not by accident that they came up empty. Because in the providence of God, Christ was going to teach them an important lesson that they will not be fishers of men unless Christ blesses them in their fishing of men. And what's interesting is that Jesus uses an illustration in terms of revealing Himself to them. He uses an illustration whereby He withholds success from men in the area where they're actually good. Do you know what I'm saying? He actually takes them in their strength and shows, you know how much you need me? Even the thing that you're good at, you can't do without me. There are a lot of things where you could take me or any one of you and show us something we can't do and say, hey, listen, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. But imagine in the actual things that we are good at coming up empty. How humbling is that? 
How humbling to not be good at the thing you're good at. You're a great artist and someone says, oh, draw me a picture. And all of a sudden you just can't draw a picture and there's a stick man. What happened? You can do nothing apart from me. But it's actually also interesting that while they will only ever catch any fish with the blessing of Christ, something else is also remarkable here. They still had to throw the net over the other side of the boat. They still had to haul the fish in. They still had to act and do and think. And so they're going to have to go and actually preach the Gospel. You see, on the one hand, this tells us that if there's any blessing in the Gospel preaching that we can have, it has to come from God. But on the other hand, we still have to do it. We can't be hyper-Calvinists. Some people are so spiritual in the way they say, oh, well, God did it. Lambrick Park, 1998 maybe, and some young lady sings at the front of the church this beautiful song before Christmas, and after everyone says, oh, that was so nice. She says, wasn't me, that was God. And I was terrified at the idea that God sounded like that. We know, we know Christ is teaching us that they can do nothing apart from Him and that He will bless them. But we also know that these disciples are going to have to go and preach the Gospel. They're going to have to go and teach. They're going to have to pray. They're going to get persecuted. They're going to get put in jail. They're going to ultimately die as they are fishing for men. They're going to do it, but God is going to bless those efforts. And you have here just such a beautiful description of really what the church's mission is all about. Must you pray? Yes. Must you give money so that the Gospel can spread? Yes. Must I preach? Must you teach? Must you share the Gospel with people? Absolutely. But you can also be aware that God will bless you. But if you don't do it, God won't bless you. It's as simple as that. You can't say, oh, well, the blessing is from God. If it was according to the theology of some who wrongly understand Reformed theology, what would have happened? They would have been in the boat and all of a sudden fish would have just dropped from heaven and they would have done nothing and said, hey, see, blessing is all from God. But they still had to catch the fish. They still had to drag them in. You still have to talk about the hope that is within you to people. You know, there are some churches where I feel like the application every sermon is basically, who did you talk to this week about the Gospel? And then you come back the next week and it's the same application. We don't pester you like that here, do we? Do you feel burdened by being pestered that way every Sunday? But can I pester you today? And actually say, who do you talk to about the Gospel? I had a high school soccer meeting on Friday. Uh, we have provincials next week, and I said, you know what, I'm going to bring the boys some pizza. It's the only way I'm going to get grade 9s to 12s to come to a room at lunch and sit and listen to me. So I brought them four pizzas. I said, guys, you need to rest. And you know what day you need to rest? Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. Get to church. Get to church. One guy, oh, I've got to work on Sunday. Another guy, oh, I said I'd play a soccer game on Sunday. I said, this is nonsense. Stop it. Get to church. You've got to find ways to tell people about the Gospel. Whether they're Christians, non-Christians, you've got to talk to people. 
Because if you don't, how are they going to come? How are they going to believe? And so here, Jesus reveals Himself to His disciples saying, you will catch no one unless I bless you. But if I bless you, that means you will go and you will preach and you will teach and you will pray and you will fellowship and you will see that I will bless. And so maybe some of us do need to ask some questions of ourselves about whether we are far too careful with this alleged great theology that we have, but we are not putting to good use. Jesus has been raised from the dead and He has made His disciples to be fishers of men and we are to continue that to the ability and to the degree that God has blessed us with. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank You for Your Word and for how we have such a great message but it is still a message. And it is not a message that You thunder down each day from the heavens, but one You have entrusted to servants like us in various capacities. And we ask that this message will affect us first so that we will be able to affect others. So bless us to that end, we pray for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.